Today, turn your, your Bible to a passage not often heard from in 1 Samuel chapter 9 and 10 for a sermon entitled, You Can Teach an Old Dog. We all know the old ditty. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Leopards never change their spots. He won't ever change. He's been that way as long as I have known him. For some reason, we operate with the idea that men and women will always be who they already are. Somehow, in our narrow equation of consistency of character, we miss the power of the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God has, can, and will continuously change and transform and dynamically influence human beings. When the wind of the Spirit blows in a new way, change occurs. Who let those donkeys out of the barn? I don't know. I don't know if somebody left the gate open. I don't know if they kicked down the restraints. But I can tell you that Kish's donkeys, Kish was Saul's father. Kish's donkeys were on the run. They got out. Hey, son, take a servant and go find my donkeys. They traversed all the tribal territories of Benjamin and Ephraim, and still no sign of the lost animals. They didn't find them. Finally, when they had reached the land of Zuf, Saul said, hey, let's go back. This is chapter 9, verse 5. My father's probably not worried about the donkeys anymore. The reality is he's probably wondering what's happened to us. They are days into the trip now. He's worried about us. Let's go back, forget the donkeys. His servant said, now wait a minute. There's a man of God around here in this city. We'll go ask him. He'll tell us where the donkeys are. Well, that's not going to work, said Saul. What are we going to give him? I don't have anything left. All of our bread is even gone. We have nothing to pay the preacher. This isn't going to work. We cannot go to the prophet. Well, I happen to have, said the servant, a fourth of a shekel of silver. We will give that to the prophet. The prophet will send us on our way and tell us whether we should keep looking or whether we should go home. So they go to the city where the man of God resides. And they saw some women going out to the well to draw water. Now that's a Familiar biblical theme, isn't it? I could do a whole series of sermons on women who go to the well, couldn't I? Rebecca and Rachel and Zipporah and the woman at the well in John 4. You could do a whole series of women at the well in Scripture. Well, this is one of those occasions, probably the one you haven't thought of if I said women at the well. Here they're going, the women out to draw the water, and they ask, is the seer here is the prophet here, they asked. Hurry, hurry, he's right in front of you. Go, go, go. He's going to the city today because you're going to have a sacrifice in the high places and they can't start without him because the preacher has to say the blessing. So they'll wait on him. You go, you find him, you go. As they go up to the city, Samuel was coming out of the city to go up to the high place to say the blessing for the sacrifice. 
This is a two-point sermon. I know that if nothing else, that will thrill you today. It is a two-point sermon. Number one, God is at work. God is at work. Well, look at chapter 9 and verse 16. This is the day before. Now, the day before, the Lord had said to Samuel, about this time tomorrow, I'm going to send you a man from the land of Benjamin. And you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Now, it was supposed to be a theocracy. Unlike any of the other nations, Israel wasn't supposed to have a king. It was a, a tribal arrangement with God being the only king, a theocracy, theo, God, as the king. But no, the people wanted to be like the other nations. The Philistines had a king. They were our enemies. We need a king to help us bring all the tribes together to defeat the Philistines. They cried out to God. They wanted a king. And God said, okay, it wasn't the perfect plan, but you can, you can have a king. But I want you to notice Despite the fact this passage is about God allowing them to have a king, and, and Saul will be our first king, as you know, I want you to notice in verse 16 how many times in that passage, beginning there, we have the word my. He will be prince over my people, Israel, and he will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have regarded my people because their cry has come to me. Despite the fact that they're going to have their first king, God still calls Israel my people, his people. In verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, that's the one, that's the man, that's the guy that's going to rule over, again, notice, my people. Now, to understand this narrative, this story, you have to remember that Saul is simply out looking for lost donkeys. He's not in on what God's doing. He's not in on what Samuel's doing. All he wants to do is to get his daddy's lost donkeys and go home before they run out of food, which they had already gotten to that point. So Saul says, sir, kind sir, can you tell me where the seer lives, the man of God? I am the seer, verses 18 through 20. Go up before me to the high place, for you shall eat with me today. And in the morning, I will let you go, and I will tell you all that's on your mind. Hey, and about your donkeys, don't worry about your donkeys. They are already back home. Quit worrying about the donkeys. They've been found. And look at the end of verse 20. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all of your father's household? He's just looking for donkeys, looking for the prophet. The prophet can tell him where the donkeys are, where they ought to go home. Hey, can you tell me where the prophet is? I am the prophet, and you're going to go with me up to the high place, and we're going to eat together. And in the morning, I'll tell you everything you want to know and quit worrying about those donkeys. They've already been found. And then I, I imagine Samuel looked at him with that gleam in his eye. Everything desirable in Israel is for your family, for you. The irony of the story is the key actor, Saul, is not the key actor. God and Samuel, especially God, seem to be doing all the decision-making. 
Saul is simply acted upon. His father says, find the donkeys. And now God and the Samuel, the prophet, are going to tell him he's going to be the next king. I want you to notice that God said to Samuel, I will send you a king. Maybe God left the gate open so the donkeys could get out. I'm going to send you a king. Saul thinks he's on a random path searching for the donkeys all over the tribe of the Benjamites and Ephraim, but the reality is God is sending Saul to the right place, the right time, at the right moment so he can run into the seer, the prophet Samuel. This is the one, God says. Look at verse 17 of chapter 9. And when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord said to him, Behold, the man of whom I spoke to you, this one shall rule over my people. Just out looking for lost donkeys, meandering in an aimless path, looking for donkey tracks, and God is sending him to Samuel so that Saul will be the next king. God is at work in our randomness. All around us, every day, every moment, in every way, God is at work, the unseen hand in our lives. There's a Reader's Digest article decades ago, 1949. It was entitled, It Happened on the Brooklyn Subway. It Happened on the Brooklyn Subway, as old as it is, the story's just as powerful today. January the 10th was the day 1948. Just two years after the conclusion of World War II, Marcel Sternberger had gone to visit a sick friend that morning, and so he took a different train than he usually took to work, a train he had never, ever taken before in his life. But on January the 10th, 1948, he took a train for the first time. When I got on there, the train was absolutely packed with people, full, every seat taken. All of a sudden, a man jumps up as if he's about to miss his station, and Sternberger quickly sat down in that seat, and he noticed the man next to him was reading a Hungarian newspaper, a Hungarian newspaper. Well, Sternberger had grown up in Hungary. He doesn't normally talk to strangers on the subway, but he thought, well, we have the Hungarian thing in common. I think I'll make a comment. And so in Hungarian, he said, I hope you don't mind if I glance at your paper every now and then. The man was so surprised to hear someone speaking to him in his native language that they struck up a conversation. The man said that his name was Paskin and that he was a law student when the war started but he was eventually put into a labor battalion and sent to the Ukraine. Later, he was captured by Russians and given the awful task of burying the German dead. And after the war was over, he covered hundreds of miles on foot to go back to his hometown of Debrecen, Hungary. When he got there, he went to his parents' flat, his parents' apartment, and a new family was living there. He was upset. He went to the apartment where his wife was supposed to be, his own apartment. Another family was there in that apartment. And finally, he found someone he knew from the old days in Debreson before the war. And they told him, they've taken your parents, your brothers, your sisters, 
and your wife all to Auschwitz, and they have been killed in the gas chambers. He was stunned by the news. Hungry for him became a funeral land. He decided to, to, to leave. He went to Paris, and then in October 1947, he came to the United States. And as Sternberger listened to the story, he thought, this sounds familiar. I, I met a lady from Debreson, Hungary, and, well, her story was kind of like this. And, well, she had, and her family had been taken to Auschwitz, but then she was reassigned to a German munitions factory, and all of her family, except she, had been killed in the gas chambers. And then they put her on the first boat to New York for displaced persons from the war in 1946. And, well, Sternberger had been so taken by her story that he wrote down her name and her address and her phone number. It was all kind of adding up. He thought, this is impossible. It can't be. Is there a connection between this man I don't even know and this woman I met months ago? Both so many miles from home. When he reached his station... He decided he'd just stay on the train. And he said, your first name, Mr. Paskin, doesn't happen to be Bella, does it? The man went pale and said, why, yes. How would you know my first name? Is your wife's name Maria? He continued. By now, he looked like he might faint. Paskin said, yes, yes, I'm Bella. My wife is Maria. Sternberger insisted they get off at the next station, which was neither of their stations, without explaining why. He took out his little address and phone book, and he went to a phone booth, and he called Maria Paskin. And he said, when you were in Debreson, Hungary, with your husband, Bella, what street did you live on? She gave him the address, and he turned around to Bella Paskin and said, did you live on such and such street address in Debreson? And he said, yes, I did. And he said, my friend, a miracle is about to happen. And he handed him the phone. He talked to his wife. He thought dead for years, Maria. He realized he was talking to his, he thought, dead wife, Maria. He began to uncontrollably sob. And Sternberger took him to a cab, held the cab, paid the fare, and sent him to the address to be reunited with his wife. The article continues to describe the emotional reunion between the Paskins, and each thought the other was dead by the result of the war. And 4,451 miles away from Debreson, Hungary, there in Brooklyn, New York, the one man who happened to be able to put them together happened to be taking a drain that he had never taken before and happened to sit in that seat and happened to notice a Hungarian newspaper and happened to strike up a conversation and happened to have written it all down. God is at work in our world. The one person was in the right place at the right time, apparently random, to reunite Maria and Bella. Saul is just out looking for lost donkeys. But God is at work in the donkeys and where they run and where he searches. For God had said to Samuel the prophet, tomorrow I will send you a king. And God used a donkey chase to bring to the prophet 
the first king of Israel. Now look there at the end of verse 20. Everything is desirable in Israel for you and your family. Now even Saul the donkey chaser realizes that means something pretty important. No, 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 no. You got the wrong guy, said the boy chasing donkeys. It is not I. I, I'm from that little tribe called Benjamin. And that little tribe called Benjamin, my, my family is the least important of all the families in the tribe of Benjamin. So there's nothing for me in my household. Samuel doesn't address Saul's protest. He just all of a sudden starts treating him like a king. Here you sit. They go up to the banquet. 30 men or more are there. He put him at the head of the table and they brought him, go get that special slice of meat I told you to set aside. And they bring out the big leg there for him to eat a special food and special rest and a special seed. And God has selected Saul as king and Samuel just starts acting as if he's a king. Then look at chapter 10, verse 1. Samuel took the flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not God the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, when the prophet gets out the oil, you better be ready for the Spirit of God. The oil comes out, the Spirit descends, and Saul is anointed by the Spirit, empowered by Yahweh. Then God says to Samuel, I'm going to give you some signs to give to Saul so he'll know that he's not on a donkey chase. He's at a coronation. So he gives him some signs so he will know that everything the seer, the prophet is saying is the will and the way of God. First of all, he says in chapter 10, verse 2, Here's some signs. Tomorrow you're going to meet two men and they're going to tell you the donkeys have been found. That happens verse 2. Verse 3, you're going to meet three men and then they're going to give you some bread. It happened. And verse 5, it says, the third sign is you will come upon a band of prophets and you yourself will become a prophet, a seer. The second thing I want you to see, God changes everything. God changes everything. With this promise, Saul will be turned into another man, a new creature empowered for God's special purpose. In verse 5, he tells him there'll be a group of prophets. They'll have harps and tambourines and a flute and a lyre. And they will be prophesying. And notice verse 6, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily and you shall prophesy with them and you will be changed into another man, changed into another man. There it is, another man. You will be a different person when you prophesy with the prophets. Then notice verse 9. That word change is used again. And then it will happen when he turned his back to leave Samuel. Right then, God changed his heart. And all those signs came about that day. The two men, your donkeys are found. The three men, here's some bread. The prophets, he became one of them. Don't ever let anyone tell you you can't change. 
Oh, by your own power and your own might and your own strength, you will never change. But by the power and the will and the might of God, you will become another man with another heart. With God, a leopard might not only change his spots, he might just get stripes with God. God's number one business is redeeming and changing people. God can change Saul, and God can change me, and God can change you. Don't ever tell me what God can't do. Don't ever limit the power of the creator of the cosmos. Don't ever make the mistake about what God can or cannot do with anyone, for the power of the Spirit of God will blow where it will, and change can does occur. Some of you this morning, some of you watching by live stream or television have been making some bad choices. You begin to find yourself in some bad company. Those who are going to destroy your character, your witness, your influence. Some of you have made bad choices for so long that you don't even know how to make a good choice anymore. You can change. God changes people. God is in the business of change. Let me make a confession this morning. It was years ago, a man came down the aisle that didn't have a great reputation, had a lot of issues, a lot of problems, took my hand and told me he wanted to change everything about his life. I knew a little bit about his history. I thought, okay, bud, we'll go through this, but I know you're trying to manipulate me and the church and God and your family, but you're out of cards, and this is the only card you can play, so okay, let's do it. Man, was I wrong. I've since done his funeral, and I can tell you on that day, when his doubting pastor was skeptical that the Spirit of God was changing that man from the inside out. Everything about him changed that day. His vocabulary changed. The way he lived his life changed. He was here every time we unlocked the doors. If I had said we're meeting Thursday night at 2 a.m., that fellow would have beat me here and been in the parking lot when I got here. He became one of those persons in my life that began to teach me things about the power of God's Spirit, about obedience and excitement and following Christ. He ministered to me through the years. He did this for years, ministered to my family and ministered to our church family. He became one of the most well-liked persons in this congregation. And on the day the Spirit of God was changing his heart as a result of the proclamation of the Word of God, your pastor, the one doing the proclaiming, said, yeah, right. When I did his funeral, by that time he was a spiritual giant. Now, there was nothing in his history, in my defense, there was nothing in his history, nothing about his past behavior that would lead one to conclude that he would be a different person after hearing a sermon, after the Spirit of God came upon him. But he was totally different. 
He treated his children differently, adult children. He treated his mother differently. He treated everyone around him differently. How is it that you and I have become convinced through the years that the power of God Almighty who took the dust and created life in humanity cannot change the hearts of men and women? The message here, verse 6 and verse 9, God will change you. You will be another man. God will change you. You will have a new heart. This man was changed in his relationship to his church, in his family. Every, everybody noticed. At first, we all waited for it to play out. Maybe he's like the seed on the shallow soul, and maybe he'll be all excited about church and Christ and being a disciple and serving others, and maybe he'll get back to those worldly interests, and he'll, it'll be, you know the parable, it'll choke everything out, but it didn't. It didn't. What does God want to change about you? How does he want to change you? How, how can God make you another person with another heart? He can. He will. God will change you into another man or another woman. God will change your heart. You are not trapped. You are not defeated. You are not downtrodden. The pattern has not been set, and the mold can be melted by the Spirit of God. You can be a new man or a new woman with the preaching of the gospel. All Saul wanted was some donkeys who'd gotten out of the fence. He was not looking to be a king over a kingdom. He is humble. He is mystified by the honors being heaped upon him. He is horrified. But as he turns to take his leave of the prophet, we read in verse 9, God changed Saul's heart. God is at work. And when God is at work with Saul or me, are you? When the Spirit comes, you're never the same. God will set you free. God will make you into a new person. God will make you into another man or another woman with a new heart. Don't ever doubt what God can do with you, a friend, a family member. The one who scooped up the dust that day and said, let there be life, can create a new heart, make a new man out of you or me or anyone who yields the power of the Spirit to the preaching of the gospel. Let us pray. Oh God, there's some men and women you want to change today. 
There's some hearts upon whom the Spirit of God needs to fall, some in this room and some by broadcast. There's some who are given up and they feel trapped and downtrodden. And they feel like, I'll never be able to be different. Meet God. You'll be different. In his name we pray. Amen.